guys. You ready? All right. I want to welcome you to our series on Empowered. And Empowered, to be simple about it, is this idea that God wants to move through you to touch people that he loves, to do a difference, to make a difference in their life as they have needs, as they have things that are going on, as they have issues in life and all of that going on. God wants to show people how real he is. He wants to show them. He wants them to come to know him as he reaches out to make a difference in their life. And the way that he does that is through us for the very most part. And so we want to get better at that because we want to make God known, right? Because we love him and we want people to know him. And so this is something that we do and this is something that we're working on. But I want to say something. When I started this, when I felt like God was telling us to do it, and we started into it, I really believed that pretty much what this would be about was learning how to do word of wisdom and word of knowledge and faith and healing and miracles and prophecy and, and distinguishing of spirits and tongues and interpretation and just how to move in these gifts. I thought that God was going to sort of take us along a path of learning how to do that stuff. But something extraordinary has happened as we have been going along this journey, the one that the disciples went along. And that was in order for us to really be his instruments finely wielded so that we actually do what he wants. You know, a lot of people do things in the name of the Lord that don't turn out what, how the Lord wanted, right? What he was hoping for. And what the Lord has been doing, just as he did with the disciples, is he's been showing us on this journey how important it is that we actually know him. Because until you actually know him, whatever you manifest is going to have a twist to it, is going to have a turn to it, is going to be added on according to your understanding. Now let me make something very clear. I don't think we can ever actually know God in fullness. I don't think so. He's infinite, we're finite, we just can't do that. But I do think something else, which is I think if we really press in, I think if we really go after him, that we will come to know him deeper and deeper and deeper. And wherever we are in that continual process, he can use us to make this enormous difference in people's lives, right? Which, by the way, let's be clear about something. Uh, Ken and White and all the things that are going on, it's quite possible that the world is going into a season that is going to be very difficult, if not even the end. But it's quite possible, I'm not prophesying that or saying that. I don't want anybody to freak out. But what I want to say is, is as the world encounters ever more difficulty, the need for God's loving touch through us goes through the roof, right? The need for people to come to understand the real nature of God, the true nature of God, who he really is, goes through the roof. Because until people know who he is, they don't understand what he's actually doing. So I thought, like I say, that we were going to do this sort of, you know, learning about how to move in the gifts and be empowered and all that. And what God has been doing in an extraordinary fashion is taking, I believe, this entire congregation into, I want to say truly a different understanding of who God is. But let me make the metaphor. In marriage, when you first get married, you are in love and it is the most awesome thing you have ever experienced in your life. And you wish that that love would never end. And let me say clearly, thank God that it does. Because if it didn't, you wouldn't come to know the even better that God has. 
because anybody who's been married knows that there comes a point in time at which as much as you're in love and as much as you want that to continue forever, there is a day when you wake up and you realize that maybe you don't actually have the faintest idea who that person sleeping next to you is. And you have to get something going, right? And you have, if you work through that, if you really go through it, and sometimes it can be the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, it can be extremely difficult. Anybody ever bore witness to that in their marriage? Sometimes it can be very, very difficult. But if by the grace of God and by just hanging in there with whatever, everything you've got, if you do actually get through to that, there's this extraordinary thing that happens. You come into an entirely different kind of love, don't you? And it's so much richer, so much deeper, so much more substantive, so much more meaty, so much more just, ugh. there's just so much more to this love that when you look back at the love that you had, which was phenomenal and wonderful and awesome, and I'm not denigrating it in any way, shape, or form because it is incredible. But when you really come into the next depth of God and next depth of love for one another, what happens is, is that you look back at where you were and you suddenly see what was so rich as being fairly superficial, relatively at least. Not that it wasn't wonderful, but it just isn't anything like this. And this just happens over and over in life, in marriage, in our relationship with God, which a marriage is a type for a relationship with God, right? So I want us to, to just think about that what I think God has been doing in this journey that we began thinking it was about moving in power, that what he's actually been doing is saying, I want to reset your understanding of who I am. I am. I want to reset that understanding. Because that's much more important than anything else. And when we start getting that, the God that flows through us is so much more richly and fully and beautifully Him in fullness, even though we're still finite, even though there's still more to come, right? Do you, do you see what we're saying? And I want to say something. I've been pursuing God for 40 years with a passion. I'm, I'm not one that, that sort of did things in God too. When I discovered who God was, I think it's fair to say that I have not varied from a pursuit to find him more deeply. And I have done years of education towards that. I have done years of ministry towards that, professionally and volunteer and in every other way you could imagine. I have I've really, when I found him, my life has been very much 40 years now of ministry and trying to understand him better so I could communicate him better. And I want to tell you that just at the beginning of this year, because of this series, I just don't even, it just kills me. I just don't even know how to describe it. But I love God so much more deeply than I ever knew was even possible that I'm just wrecked. Wrecked. Last Sunday, John and Lori Batterman preached a sermon about marriage that I got to stream, and it was, it was phenomenal and gorgeous. It was so good. And what they did is, they, by God's leading, they went back into Luke, and they showed how through story after story what God was doing with the disciples was showing them how to die to themselves. 
so that he could shine more. Right? John the Baptist saying, he, I must decrease that he might increase. And they just did this wonderful job of showing us that that's, and I preached through all of those messages and missed every single one of them that they caught. <laughs> that's just how rich the scripture is, right? Because those were pretty good sermons. And then they come along and they just take it to a whole nother level. Well, I want to say the thing that I'm going to talk about, you've been hearing me talk about, and I'm asking while we go into prayer right now for the sermon, I'm asking you to really pray for me. Because if I get this right, this dying to self thing turns out to be the easiest thing you could ever imagine. Seriously, how many of you have been Christians for so long? How many times have you heard die to yourself? I mean, is it in the thousands, right? And how many of you would say, I really know how to do that? <laughs> right? We hear it over and over, die to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself. And we're all kind of sitting there going, I wish I could. We're going to take an enormous step forward in how to actually die to self, and even more importantly, how to let the glory of God shine through us. That's what we're doing today. I, this is such an important sermon. Again, I don't want to raise expectations to an impossible height for me to meet them, but I am asking you, if you pray for me, I think that we all might experience a rapturous moment. Okay? So Roger is the most perfect person to be praying for this. Roger, thank you for your unbelievable faithful service for so many years and just for being an amazing man of God in so many ways. You are wiser and older than your years and you have been a blessing to every single person that knows you. So lift up the sermon, would you, and lift up another church too. Thank you. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, each individually, to this church as a body, as a part of your universal church, God. We just ask, God, that you would speak to us. You would teach us, God. Thank you for Kurt. Thank you that he is prepared. But God, we know that it is you Amen. that will speak to each individual heart today, God. And so we say, speak to us. We are listening, God. We ask, God, your anointing upon the words that Kurt would share, but more especially on the, the words that you would speak to us in our hearts and in Amen. our spirits. Amen. God, teach us today. Teach us today, God, how to love you, how to die to ourselves, how to more richly understand the depths of who you are in our lives, God. Amen. Thank you, Lord God. Father, I just want to pray for the churches in Bellevue today, Amen. God, right around us. There's, there's so many, God. Each one, I, I don't even want to pick one out, God. I just want to pray for our brothers and sisters today who are meeting to worship you right now and throughout this day, God. I just pray for your anointing. I pray for your spirit to fill each place of worship and that you would be honored and glorified and that lives would be changed. In Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Roger, that is uncanny. As you were praying such a beautiful prayer about the sermon, I was thinking to myself, wow, it's not just a church today. It's that everybody would get this. And then that's what you prayed. I love it when God is moving, and thank you, God. That gives me some hope that I might actually get there today. Uh, Hayden, are you here today? No. Oh, in the back. He's hiding. He didn't know I was going to talk about him, but he, in the spirit, he put him in the back. How many of you remember at the beginning of the year when I, poor Hayden, when I, when I brought Hayden up and I, we were doing the story of the, of the prostitute 
and the guy, you remember? And, and it was the, the, you know, Jesus has come into the rich man, the, the, the Pharisee's house, into the religious man's house. And then the prostitute comes and, you know, she grabs a hold of his feet. She's weeping and drying her. She's cleansing her, his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair and anointing with perfume and, and so on. And to illustrate that, I had actually Hayden up here, you know, reclining at the table and I kissed his feet. And I feel so sorry for you. To this day, it's damaged both of us horribly. Okay, I'll never get that out of my mind. But it looked like it worked because it's not out of your guys' mind either, okay? So, but... But the point is, is that there's a principle in there, and this is right about the time that God was getting a hold of me about something, this thing that I'm talking about today. And there was a sort of a first level that was then, and I'm getting to a second level of it today. But, but the point is, I want us to just kind of capture that moment again, because what happened was, is that what Jesus says is, is look at this woman kneeling here. The, 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 the religious person is saying in his mind, doesn't he know the filthy person that's touching him and making him unclean? Doesn't he know the kind of woman this is and why could he let her do this, right? And so this religious person is saying this. And Jesus says to that religious, he's, he's saying it in his mind, by the way, he, but Jesus knows what's in his thoughts. And so Jesus says, look at this woman kneeling here, he says to the guy, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and listen to this, and they are many, <laughs> right? He knows exactly who she is, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. A person who's been forgiven little, they show only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now, when I hear that, I don't know what goes off in your mind, but what goes off in my mind immediately is this parable that Jesus told to people to get them to understand something about what was happening in Christ that was utterly new. And that, that understanding was, he, he says to his disciples, he says, two men go into a temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, and a Pharisee is a religious leader. And, and let me make this clear. A Pharisee is a person who, when you look at them, you say, if, if there was a Pharisee in this room today, we all think we'd call him a religious hypocrite or a pie or whatever, but that's not true. The Pharisees were actually well-loved by people. There was some problems, but the point is, is that the Pharisees were people that were really trying to get it right with God, honestly and sincerely as best they knew. And they really were getting it much more right than the normal person. So look what the Pharisee says. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. And guess what? That's true. <laughs> they are not a sinner like everyone else. Now, we can, reading forward, but I need to get this out of your head. So I'm going to wrap forward real quick and then wrap it back. The, what we, when we read this thing, we say, yeah, but you were self-pious. You were self-righteous. There was a pride in you, a religious pride and so on, right? And so that's the condemnation. That's what makes you a bad person. And that is what the story has to do with. But I want to get rid of that. And I want us to understand that right now in this building are people who do not struggle much with sin. There's, there's plenty of us do not raise your hands. There's plenty of us that when I talk about being a sinner, you don't have any trouble understanding what that means. <laughs> right? You know exactly what that means. And you say, do I struggle with sin? And your hand goes, yep, I struggle with sin. Right? But honest to goodness, there's other people in here 
that are wonderful people who you look up to. And they don't seem to struggle with sin the same way that the mass of us do. They really don't. They really do have their life in a very different space and place. And that is an excellent thing, a truly good thing. But I want us to, like I say, I want us to understand that the story is talking some about this self-righteousness. But really what the story is talking about underneath that in the deepest way is the idea that any of us is anything but a hopeless sinner. See, someone would say, on the relative, on relatively, I'm doing better. And there is a thank you, God, for that, right? It's better not to sin, <laughs> right? <laughs> but there's another thing that we're going to be uncovering here today that I just want to see, show you is in this. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. Look, he says, I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. And God doesn't sit there at the altar and say, yes, you do. They don't. He doesn't. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Now, that's that self-righteous part, okay? So just kind of, right, wash that away for the sake. But look at this. He's not only not sinning, but he's actually doing the right. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. God's not charging. Jesus is not confronting him. God is not confronting this man for those things. It's true. He, he does, doesn't do the bad things and does do the good things. But then the tax collector stands at a distance. And a tax collector, you have to understand, just for those who don't understand, a tax collector is a Jewish person who has turned against their people. And here's how. The Romans are the oppressors. They're hated. And the Roman army is fueled by what? The money they take from people like the Jews. So the, the tax collector is a Jewish person who's taking money from Jewish people to give it to the oppressor so that they can oppress better. See it? So these guys are hated. They're not like a tax collector today. We don't like them. But, you know, it's not the same thing at all. This would be a hated person. And Jesus takes this most hated class of person and says, the tax collector stands at a distance and dares not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prays. Instead, he beats his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returns home justified before God. Well, wait a minute. Would the Pharisee, here's the question, would the Pharisee, if he hadn't been self-righteous, would he have returned justified too? Because after all, he didn't cheat, he didn't steal, he didn't adult and trade or whatever. And he, And he did fast, and he did tithe, and he did, you see what I mean? Would he, if he hadn't been so self-righteous, would he have returned justified? See the question? And all of a sudden, we're starting, to, we're getting out that shovel, and we're starting to have to dig underneath this thing. We're starting to have to say, there's something else going on here. When I was in Jackson, my brother, Dave, who is probably the, the largest fountain of godliness that I've ever known in my life. And I don't mean righteousness and self-righteousness. I just mean when Dave talks and says things, there's just this thing that happens in you and you just go, yeah, that's more true than what I ever thought before and I like you and keep, tell, keep talking because that changes me. 
And Dave said that he was talking to somebody the other day, and he said, this person said an extraordinary thing. He said, this person said, he said, in every minister, he was talking about ministers, but he said, but I'm using it for every Christian. We have two notes, two melodies, one in each pocket, two songs. In the left-hand pocket, a song that we're to be playing all the time is a hallelujah chorus that you are a child of God, that God loves you, that he is completely enraptured and captured by you. He loves you. You are a child of the Most High God. You are his prized possession. That's who we are. Now right there, there's a lot of people in this room that don't know that song. Thankfully, there's several in this room that do, and most do, I hope. But there's a lot of people in this room that really do not know that song about how much God loves you and about that you are truly a child of the King, a child of God Almighty. And we need to be playing that song continually in our hearts. You know how you get that song stuck in your head, right? We need to have that song stuck in our head, playing all the time. But in the right-hand pocket, there's another song that also needs to be playing all the time time and that is that you are a hopeless sinner that the depths of your sin is so much deeper than you have any idea about that you cannot possibly understand the depths of it you you have but scratched the surface of the degree to which you are a sinner and you do not have an understanding of the depths of it which God doesn't for the most part let you see because you would just crumble in despair we need to understand at every single moment that that song is also to be playing in our heart, that we are hopeless sinners. Every single one of us, no matter relatively how good you are, no matter relatively how bad you are, everybody needs to have this song in their heart all the time that is also stuck in their head that is saying, I am a hopeless sinner, meaning in myself there is no hope for me to get out of this. Now that is a truth, of course, that establishes the whole of the Reformation. I hope everybody in here knows who Martin Luther is, but Martin Luther is when, when back when there was no, nothing but the Catholic Church, and Catholic simply means all, right? And there was a, the Catholic Church, which we now distinguish from Protestant Church, and the figure that, that brought it from Catholic to Protestant was, of course, Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a phenomenally good student as a youth, and he went through college, and he got his master's, and then he was, because of his dad's desire, he was going into law. And as he got just a little ways into law, he said, this is not for me. And he said, there's something that's in me that I want that's more deep than anything I'm pursuing. And I'm going, to his dad's great disappointment, I'm going to quit that, and I'm going to go after this other thing. And first he went to philosophy, and he tried to find certitude, and he tried to find the, the, the scratch to the the way to scratch the itch through philosophy and couldn't find it. He tried several things and then all of a sudden he turned to religion. He turned to God. All of a sudden he realized this is it. This is the thing that grounds me. This is the thing that takes me down to the very... This is the thing that scratches this itch that God is talking to me about. This is happening in my life. And he made a decision at that moment in time to be... I'm cutting out really badly. I don't know if we can do what, what we can do about it, but maybe if I do this, if I stand up and drop things, you guys will just laugh at me, right? Okay, maybe that'll help. Um, but what he did was, 
is that he, went, he was headed into, he had a final party with his friends and said, I'll never see you again because I'm going away to just be with God. You can see the, the depths of him just wanting to be with God, right? You can see that. But something funny happened inside the, the uh, what is a monkdom? What is that? Monastery. Thank you. <laughs> monkdom. It's a monkdom for sure. That's what it is. There's a new word for you. Inside the monastery, something happened to him. He thought that by getting rid of all these distractions and everything else that he could start getting closer and closer to God. And he did. And the closer that he got to God, the more that he found something, he discovered something. The more serious I take trying to close the gap between God and me, trying to get rid of himself, trying to be sinless so that I can be holy, H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy and holy his, right? The more that I do that, the harder I try and do that, the more that I discover the enormity of the gap between us. In other words, the closer that I get, the more that I understand, oh my gosh, he's so much further out there than I thought, like the pot of gold and the rainbow. Now, that's not a trick by God. That's just his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is he. And we don't understand that because we live in this relativistic place. And we think that we're fairly close. But when you really try and actually get there, the closer that you get to there, the more that you understand, my gosh, there's this incredibly huge gulf between me and he. This is, this is by the way, C.S. Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia and, and, and um, the Lord of the Rings and all. This is that metaphor that's always right. They look across and they see how far away this other thing is and they're trying to get to it. But here's what happens. Martin Luther says, I did everything for years. I, I did everything. In fact, this is a quote, and this guy kind of misses it, but he gets close enough that I'm going to use it. Okay, this is a quote from some research. As a young monk, Luther was obsessed with atoning for his sins. That's not accurate. He wasn't obsessed with atoning for his sins. He was obsessed with getting rid of his sin so that it was no longer there at all in his life. That's what he was obsessed with. And in order to do that, what he did was is that uh, he, didn't, he wasn't trying to punish himself. He was trying to cleanse himself. The idea was is if your flesh is a problem, beat it. Literally, self-flagellation. You know that thing that you see and they're slapping their backs and so on? It was anything that it took, right? Denial, star, fasting, these kind of things. Extreme self-denial, physical and mental tests. See that? To get rid of myself. That it can only be God filling my consciousness as I know he wants and as I can feel to self-flagellation. One such punishment consisted of lying in the snow through the night at the height of winter until he would have to be carried back inside. Within an inch of death, he's trying to kill the self. Do you see it? Trying to kill the flesh. You see it? And he did it, 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 and he found at some point in time that there was no end to trying to do it because you cannot get across that gulf. It cannot be bridged by us. And in fact, what Martin Luther said about that period of time later on in his life was he described this period of his life as one of deep spiritual despair. He said, now listen, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made of him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. You hear it? You hear it? 
in trying to get close to God and in knowing that he hadn't gotten there. He suddenly starts to realize what Paul was talking about all those times when Paul says, are you going to try and finish in the flesh what was begun in the spirit? And remember, the law was all about this. Try and keep it. By the way, here's what the law is. There's all kinds of books, right? But those are mostly prescriptions, you know, Leviticus and Numbers and all the stuff that we're in in our, in our soap. That's all about priests and so on, about how to be right with God. Because with the priests that are approaching him, he's trying to make them understand how wide the gulf really is. But for you and me, here's what he said. Ten words. Ten commandments literally translated ten words. Ten simple little words. Which after it was all said and done, Paul says, or God says through Paul, everyone sinned. We all fell short of God's glorious standard. But notice I put that in the past tense because what I want you to understand is, is what Martin Luther found as he tried to get there was he found out that even though I have been made new, even though I have a new nature, I still sin. I still fall short of his glory, of who, what holiness really is. I still have self that is raising up between me and God making me want to go my way, not his. You see it? So he's saying that's not just for yesterday. That's for today. And when he does that, he starts to capture the true sense of, you see, when we look at this story, if we, if we tell that story, if we didn't have that story, if we talked about it when we went we'd, and we would point out who are the good Christians that you're supposed to emulate, we would pick out the Pharisee. Because we'd say that's the life that you want to look like, Right? Nobody would say, that person that's just, you know, the horrible tax collector, this person in so much trouble, that's the person you're supposed to emulate. Nobody would say that. Why? Because what we do is we look on the outside. When God is looking on the inside. And on the outside, we say, that person is pretty much not sinning, so they must be closer to God. And to the degree that a person who is like that is not understanding how far from God they are, they are, in fact, the Pharisee of this story, aren't they? Even though it may not seem like self-righteousness, even though they may not be lording it over other people. If you don't understand the point that Jesus is trying to make here, if you don't understand the depths of what he's going after here, the idea of what he's saying is, is we, you are a hopeless sinner. Try. Try and get it right. Try and stop sinning. Do it in everything. Try. Try. That was the law. He let us try for 2,000 years. It's not just that we sin. It turns out that even all of the good things we do are messed up because our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Excuse me, menstrual cloth. We pollute everything that we do because we have our agenda in it. Not just in the Old Testament, Isaiah, but now. Remember, Jesus says, you're going to stand before me, and everything that you did that is wood, hay, and stubble, what does that mean? Everything you did. <laughs> everything that was about you and your agenda and your idea and your thought, and even if you thought those were godly thoughts. <laughs> Get away from me, I never knew that, he says. That burns up in the fire. The only things that last are the things that he's done through and those have to be purified of all the stuff we added to. <laughs> you see it? I hope, you, I hope you're starting to feel something here because what I want us to do is I want us to get a hold of the thought that I gave during the sermon with Hayden. 
What if a whole lot of Christians are spending a whole lot of time and energy making it unnecessary to need a Savior? See, I needed a Savior before I was saved because I was such a sinner. I got it. But then I got saved and I was made new. And now I'm going to work really hard to be a good Christian. I had this moment. I was driving across the country. And, and you know, uh, when I was young, man, I'd get in a car for 16 hours and stop for nothing but gas and a little bit of gum. And I would never have a problem. I'd just go, Right? Now, I'm sort of circling back onto the infant thing, because you know how when you put a baby in a car seat to get him to go to sleep, right? When you put a baby in a car seat and actually start driving, they fall asleep, right? Well, I'm the baby in the driver's seat, okay? And I, I'm not kidding you. It's dangerous. Julie, knows she's laughing over there at me. It's, it's horrible. You put, you go, I go from here to Redmond, and by the time I hit Redmond, I'm going, <laughs> do not drive close to me. If you see a white Toyota, just stay away, Okay? I'm driving across the country. It's late at night in Idaho and Montana where radio stations cost, you know, what, a couple hundred bucks a, a, a month to run. And unlike a big city like this where, you know, you got to have. And, so, and it just turns out that, like, what, what is it? You, those of you who are from there, what percentage of the radio stations are Christian? AM. AM. I'm listening to music. I'm falling asleep. I'm doing this. I'm falling. I'm, everything's falling asleep. But I finally think maybe some talk radio or something. I'm just trying to do anything to not fall asleep and die. Right? And so I go to the AM dial and I'm looking for anything I can. And what percentage? You guys are from Montana. Is it 40%? Maybe even 50? It's just a ton, right? It's just like station after station is Christian. It's just everybody's preaching up a, the storm, right? And I'm, and I'm driving along and I'm listening to these preachers and there's this thing that starts happening in me, which is this thing that I'm telling you that, that God worked into me from, from early this year and then another level, which is the first level is this. When I started doing this thing with Hayden, when I preached that sermon, I was realizing something in my life. God doesn't care about my sin. Now, let me make it clear. What I just said is totally wrong. Okay? I want to be clear. Okay? God cares a lot about my sin. That's why he died. But at this point in time, I'm the one that's oriented to whether I'm sinning or not. God has covered me with his blood. He doesn't, that, the sin is not what he's focused on. The sin is not the issue. Now again, somebody's going to hear this, they're going to say, yeah, but, well, I'm going to talk about how Paul had to handle that, right? Because people said, yeah, but does that mean then that? And he said, of course not. But the point is, is you've got to get this stuff right in order to get it right. And, what, and that means that you have to push the paradox. You have to push out this thing. God is not, you who are struggling with your sin if you are the person who is coming back to him and genuinely crying out to God for mercy and for help, you're the ones that are actually getting the help. If you're not crying out to God for help, God's telling you that he's not helping you because you're not asking for it. And he's giving you free will. And if you think you got it, go ahead, do it. It's the people that know their need that are the ones that are calling out. To make it clear, let me ask you this one question, says Paul. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. 
You receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? If the law for 2,000 years told you that nobody could get there, now that you've been made new, what makes you think that you can get there still? What makes you not understand that what God is trying to do is save you? You need a Savior. Not just for the time that you didn't know him until you do know him. You need a Savior right now. Every moment you need to be saved. Because you don't understand the degree to which you are not linked up and, and, and synced up. And him It is you in all kinds of ways that you might not even see. But that if you'll go after him and close to him, he'll start showing you that. And the more that you see it, the more that you need a savior. And so like I said a second ago, I really want to help this becomes a mantra. Okay? If you don't preach Romans in a way that seems a little wrong, you're not preaching it right. Here's what Paul said in the book. He talks about grace. Remember, Paul is the one who was Martin Luther. Right? Martin Luther was trying to sync up to God. He was trying to get it right. Paul was the one that was trying to get it right, and he was excelling above everybody else. And then at one point in time, all of a sudden, he gets saved. And even as a saved person, it is not until he is raptured up into heaven, into the highest heavens, to a place that he says, I can't even talk to you about the things that I saw. But it's after that that Paul comes back down and says, Oh my God, there's this thing called grace. <laughs> it is what Jesus is about. It is about 2,000 years of God showing you that you cannot get there so that you can see that God is the one who's coming to you. Even while you are enemies. To hold you. To love you. To bring you into his presence. One with him. Unbelievable. Child of the king. Me? No. That other person that's better than me. Because they don't seem to struggle with what I seem to struggle with. No, all of us. Paul says later on in Romans, he says, God has imprisoned everybody in disobedience that all might come to understand grace. And when he says that, you say, well, that's mean of him to do. Here's what it is. It's called human nature. We all are in need of a Savior. And that's what we have to come to learn. And so what he says when, when he's talking about this, look, why not just say, as some people have suddenly claim we say. You see what he's doing? He's talking about this incredible grace. And as he's talking about this grace, people are saying, well, if that's true, then it means this. And at one point in time, they say, let us do what's evil so the good may come. Right? If, if where evil abounds, there too much more does grace. Do evil so you can get more grace. Right? That's just nonsense. Their condemnation is deserved. It's stupid. He says it in another place. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Of course not. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's just stupid. How about this one? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Now look at what those verses are telling you. It says if you don't preach Romans in a way that seems a little wrong, you're not preaching it right. If you don't understand the radicalness of grace, if you don't understand, now here it is, 
What is grace? What's another way of saying grace? Yes, but, but I want to go much deeper than unmerited favor. That's the definition of grace. I want, to go to the, I want to go to the death behind it. If you don't understand the love that God has for you, if you don't understand that he looks at you who are hopeless in your sin and he doesn't go shaking his finger and wagging it in your face, what he's doing instead is saying, oh, you are so trapped and I want to free you because I love you. And if you will but receive me and what I've done on the cross, if you will but do that, I will save you. And I won't just save you from not salvation to salvation. I'll save you every day in every way. I'll save you, I'll save you, I'll save you, I'll save you, I'll save you. Now look, when we were back at, in Hayden, back at the beginning of the year, what I was learning was is God doesn't care about my sin. Do you know how hard that is to get rid of in your mind? By the way, ironically, when you realize that God doesn't care about your sin, you actually end up sinning much less. <laughs> right? It was when I learned that it was sin is when I got tempted and brought to it. That's what Paul says. But that wasn't the point. Because then I get caught again by it. Well, now that I don't care about sin, now I'm really not sinning. Well, that's really good. I'm doing really good in God's eyes. Well, now I'm back in the same problem again. See? Do you know how hard it is to rid your mind of this understanding that God doesn't care about your sin? That's not to say that God doesn't care about your sin, understand. Okay? But you've got to get to where you understand that God doesn't care about your sin. Because he covered it in his cross. When Hayden, when I was having this revelation that was changing my understanding of what the Christian walk was about and what I'm supposed to be preaching, when that happened with Hayden, I'm getting back to the Montana story though, by the way, for those of you who think I lost it, I didn't, it's coming. <laughs> but I want to tell you what he's been doing ever since I realized that he didn't care about my sin. It started making me understand how much he loves me. This song of his love, which frankly has always been very strong in me since I met him. Very strong. That's how I came. It was in love. It wasn't in despair. It was in love. It was a loving thing that God did. And I knew it was love at the minute. So I started with love, but I got to tell you, 40 years later, I am experiencing right now an understanding of who he is. in love that is transforming me. It's changing everything. And I'm driving along in Montana roads listening to these preachers, and three out of four of the preachers, I want to tell you, I can't listen to. Now, they're well-meaning people. They love God. They're great people. I just, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to be too judgmental about this, but I got to tell you, because of what God's been doing in me, it sounded to me like these people were talking about a God that I used to know and that wasn't true and it was driving me crazy to listen to it. Every once in a while, one out of four, I would hit a Chuck Smith or somebody and they'd be talking about God and this God that I've come to know in this deeper way. And when they would, when they would hit that note, when they'd hit that tonal quality, when that sound would come through the radio, it was like life. And I would just go, oh. I want to tell you, just so that we get a little bit clearer, these other three out of four that were sort of wagging a finger at me, 
They didn't mean to be. Again, I know that in their hearts, that's not what they thought they were doing. But what they were doing is, I've, I've come to think of it as, they were teaching me Proverbs. Let me say something very clearly. As a man who has gotten the S kicked out of him several times in life, I'm trying to figure out what S could mean other than what I meant it to mean. I can't come up with something. Strong. Whatever, yes. Whatever it was. Thanks for the help, by the way. As I, as I was experiencing this thing in God, I, I, as I went through life, Proverbs is something I needed to learn. Because Proverbs is how you live life here on this earth. And if you don't live life according to Proverbs, it will kick the crud out of you. It will, it will destroy you. You've got you to know what Proverbs is. And Proverbs comes from God. And let's make it clear. Proverbs is divine wisdom through the wisest man that ever lived. Proverbs is important. But do you remember that Jesus said, judge him by their fruit. And what was the fruit of all that wisdom that Solomon had? He walked away from God. He didn't end up with God. Now, I think he did end up with God, but not, not the, in a different way. You remember Ecclesiastes, also written by him, I believe. But at the very end of Ecclesiastes, what does it end on? What's the note it ends on? The note it ends on is, so what's all life all about? You know, keep your head down, and if you enjoy eating, you're lucky. <laughs> really hopeful, right? Let's start a religion on that note. Do you see it? Solomon never found what his father David found. It is no accident to me that David and Solomon come right together, are found in the heart of the Bible, because they are two completely different people. When we think of David, what do you think of initially? Don't you think of a very good man? David was a very good man. David did a lot of really, really good things. God moved through him powerfully. David did all kinds of good things. And, by the way, was also, you know, like an adulterer and, a, you know, gave into sexual temptation and murdered a man. I mean, not all the people that he killed in war. I mean, murdered a man who was the husband of the woman that he had the adultery with in order to cover up that he had slept with her. I don't know about any of you, but that makes him worse than me. Okay? Right? That makes him pretty bad. And yet God said that I will take my name from David, not Solomon. Because here's what David said. He didn't have a lot of bad things in his life, but he had some. But here's what David said. By the way, if you are not going to Faith Kelly and Michael, uh, Michael's, uh, my, my brain is just so bad anymore. But what's that? Byron, Mike Byron. I'm so sorry, Mike. I love you. You're, you're, if you're not going to their class, on the Psalms, would you please? Julie went last week, and she just came away going, oh my gosh, God, it speaks in, like with a megaphone in this class as you look at what David is saying in these Psalms. And when you see David, what you see that you don't see in Solomon is you see a man who is continually saying, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I'm in trouble, and I need help. You see a man who's calling out. Now watch this. What is the secret? What's the key to what David found? That God wants to put a highlighter through and say, I'm coming through him. It's in his line. It's the son of David that the Messiah will be. 
What's the highlight that he's trying to make? What is it that David got a hold of? That God loves him. And that he'd hold him. Didn't mean he wouldn't go through tough things. Didn't mean it wouldn't be terrible. But what it meant is, is at the end of the psalm, it doesn't end in keep your head down. If you can eat your food and be happy, that's good. It meant I can rely on God and I will rely on you no matter what happens because I know that you love me. Because I know that you are love. Because I know who you are. And that's what I need. That's what David learns in the Psalms. That's what we get out of the Psalms. And it is the richest book in the Bible because of it. Truly. I'm driving along in this Montana night. And I'm hearing a whole bunch of preachers, which I, I, all of a sudden now I sound critical, and so I, I want to I somehow skirt this and let you understand what it is I'm trying to say without me being a jerk. But what I'm feeling like in my heart is I'm going, oh my God, these people are leading people astray. They're trying to tell them how to be better human beings, and they're not pointing them to the hope of Christ. They're trying to make them stop sinning as if that's going to make them right with God when what they need to do is understand that no matter where they are, as they come to God in utter need of a Savior, they will be loved. You see it? So what if a whole lot of Christians are spending a whole lot of time and energy making it unnecessary to need a Savior? It's not just that you would become a good person and not sin and do all that kind of stuff. It's not just that revelation that that's not the, the playing field because the playing field is going to him there. It's this deeper playing field, the one that I hope is communicating right now, which is we need to come to know who God actually is. We need to know that when we sing this song about that we're a child of the king, what we're really singing a song about is a daddy who loves us who's crazy about us. We need to understand that according to this transfiguration moment, that what's, what's happening is, here's the way that the religion would do it to you. This is what Jesus says. The religious scholars and the Pharisees, be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it in their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's spit, polish, and veneer. Instead of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on God, Come to know his love. Come to understand that the law is something that you cannot live up to, but in grace he gave it. And in grace he gave you the sacrificial system because he was giving you a way out of your own problem. And not just so that you wouldn't do it again, but so that you would come to know his love. Instead of doing all of that kind of things, they, it, they package it in bundles of rules and loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and don't even think of lifting a finger to help. Now contrast that with what's happening on this Mount of Transfiguration, which is where we are in Luke and have been now for weeks. And i got to say, if we're going to spend a lot of time in any place in the Bible, the Mount of Transfiguration is a pretty good place. Because here's what's actually happening. Oh, by the way, when I was driving in that car, I don't know what happened. When I was driving in that car, I had that feeling with, those, with the people that were burdening people down. I had this feeling of, I wish those were disturbing you, trying to get you to circumcise yourself. This is the Jewish people were coming up from Jerusalem and they were trying to load them down with all these rules and all this kind of stuff. And Paul says that they might also get themselves castrated. 
that's, that was the indignation that I felt because they were leading people into God who is not, away from the God who is. But I just want to show you this from the transfiguration. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. What's going on there? These two men appear, Moses and Elijah, and they begin talking with Jesus, and they were glorious too. What's going on here? I think it goes like this. I think that the world that we look at and see, it has light. I can see you. It's not dark. We don't think of it as dark. We know that there's darkness in it. But we don't think of the world itself as being dark so much, right? We know that there's a lot of darkness in it, but we can see, we think that this is pretty much what it is, and there's some darkness and there's some light and so on. But when Jesus coming and talking about his death with these two, and he's ushering in what? A new covenant, a new understanding who God really is. For 2,000 years, they've been laboring, trying to get it right in themselves and not being able to. And now God is coming to them, and he's ushering in a new covenant. He's ushering in a new understanding. He's ushering in something utterly, radically, completely new, which is the God of love who comes to you to carry you home. This is why I think it's dazzling. And I want to say... In the end, you do remember in Revelations, it says that when, when the heaven and earth go away, what will be left, what will come is a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no need of the sun, for God's glory will light it up so much that there won't even be shadow. Do you catch it? Here's what God's doing. Here's the world that I birthed. Here's the world that you came into from the fall. And now what I'm trying to get you to is an entirely different reality, an entirely different truth. And in the end, it will be gloriously true in every degree. But I want you to start living in the truth of it now. You do not live in this kingdom of darkness. You live in a different place. You live in a kingdom of glory. Yes, we're in this one, but we're not of it. We're of a kingdom that is glorious. And here's what we're supposed to be. Now watch this. Moses and Elijah lit up. Why? Because they lit up? Or because being from that place, God is shining through them because there's no more self to darken his glory from shining through. You see it? Now that's what we can become. Yeah, woohoo is right. And here's how we can become that. Start understanding that you're hopeless in your sin. And that you need a Savior. And cry out to the one who loves you. And covers you in his love. Cry out to him all the time. Every time you feel yourself making a decision and you want to justify it so that you can do what you want to do, go to God and cry out. You want to die to yourself? Here's a really easy way to die to yourself. Know what a rotten person you are because then you'll want to die to yourself. <laughs> Start understanding it more deeply. Start owning it more truly. Start, don't, don't grade on a curve anymore. Start understanding that though you get a 98, the perfect score turned out to be 10 billion. See it? Now. Now you start crying out to God at every moment for him to be your savior. 
for him to and the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth, to guide you into the right path, to guide you into the, the thing that he is, which is love. Is this important? I want to just take a minute and have this discussion that we do because I want to ask you these questions. Is this true, what I'm saying? And if it is so, what does it mean? And how can we increasingly get focused on what God is focused on? God is trying to teach you that he loves you. So I just want a few people. This is a, this is a very open-ended one. A lot of times we're, you know, right? But I want to do something. I just want to hear. We're just going to take a couple of minutes on this. What does this mean to you? Is this true? I want to start with that one. Would somebody please talk? Is this true? Just go ahead. I want you to talk into why is it true? Just raise your hand and take the thing and, and say this is what it's doing in me or whatever. Go ahead. I know it's open-ended. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jeff. Um, I, I believe it's true, Kurt, because when you were talking about David and the great things that he did and the really, really horrible things that he did, and then you said, well, you know, that makes him worse than me. Um, I remember what Jesus said, that if you just think about doing it, you're guilty. Amen. And Amen. Good luck. So beyond, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who thinks they're doing it's it pretty so good, good luck. We it's so beyond what we can comprehend. Yeah. And we do make a bigger deal of our sin than, than God does. Yeah. It's more important to us than it is to him. You know, he says it can't even enter into our imaginations, the thing that he has prepared for us. And in that same vein, it doesn't enter into our imagination how far apart we really are. That's really good. Thank you, Jeff. Adam, let's, let's catch it all the way to the back of Adam. And then somebody raise their hand in front of that. Was that you, Mike? Oh, it was Paul? Okay. God seems to make a point of repeatedly telling us how sinful people are in the Bible. He doesn't sweep it under the rug Absolutely. and make it clean. And he makes a point of saying these people were not just sinful, they were adulterers and murderers, yeah. and I love them. So let's talk about that. But let's just establish who they are. He just says it over and over. Yeah, that's awesome. Paul? One way to die to self is to love God Amen. and live and Amen. love our neighbor Amen. as ourselves. You know, Paul, you, your life has been remarkably so much of that. I know there's still plenty of Paul left, and you see more than we would see. But I, I love you. The way that you do, the way that you live this out in your life is commendable and is outstanding. Thank you. Who else? Well, let's, let's go ahead and take it a little bit deeper. You know, the amazing thing is, is I've discovered how much God loves me and how he's not focused on the things that I'm focused on. It has set me free. And, and the, the struggle that I'm having and the things that I'm dealing with are totally different than what I was dealing with before. I'm not in this struggle anymore. I'm in this freedom of Christ, and I'm just flying with him. Okay? I, it's just amazing what's going on. Could somebody speak to this? Is this happening in us? Go ahead. Hi. Um, it want, always a name. Thanks. Tess. I'm Tess. Yes, Tess. Um, when I was younger, I used to um, try to be good for God and um, 
do my chores, make my bed, be nice to everyone, not steal candy, all that stuff. And as I got older, I started realizing that I would do all that, and I felt farther and further away from God. Um, finally, I figured out he loved me. <laughs> it was really weird knowing that he finally loved me. But um, dwelling on God and finding a new depth of God whenever you find a new, you learn something new, instead of just, okay, now that I know that, I'm going to strive to be better for him. It was, it was actually kind of a selfish human thing. I, I do selfish human things, and I dwell in that selfishly. And when I dwell with God in that moment of learning something new about him, the gap disappears because God has, is surrounding me because I choose to just live in that dwelling moment. Tess, that is beautiful. You just brought up an extremely important point. Because I think that our lives, when we're trying to be right with God, when we're really pursuing love with Him, there really is a striving that enters in in the most ironic way. And, and we end up striving. And I do feel peace. I don't feel the striving. I feel the dwelling. I feel just being loved by Him. And He is taking me places. It's not just being loved and stuck. It's being loved and transported. You know, wings of eagles. It's incredible. I saw, okay, and then we'll, okay. And then, so we'll go here, and then we'll go there. Oh, Cliff, awesome. Uh, yes, my name is Cliff. Um, this, this way of thinking is very difficult for me because I'm an engineer. And so <laughs> all the time. Any other engineers in the place? <laughs> what I do all the time when I'm thinking is I see problems, and then I come up with processes to fix them. Yeah. And so... Like, it, it's my, my purpose in life to do better and yeah. reduce faults. Yeah. And that awesome. isn't how I fix myself. Yeah. Wow. That was awesome. Another engineer about to speak. <laughs> yes. So I'm Eric, and I was looking at the, the second question of what does it mean to our lives, and I was just struck by the idea that once we start to orient our thinking or to, to really start to grasp how God has grace and love for us, then step two is that we reflect that out to the people around us. Yeah. Just as God doesn't care about our sins, I mean, he does, but he doesn't, we should have that same relationship with the people around us that we don't care about their sins, about their failing. I mean, we do in the sense that we want them to be better people, but we don't carry that grudge against them. Wow. And you lay it down, and you lay it down, and you lay it down, and you don't hold it against them. You don't let problems interrupt your relationships. And so it's not only that God is having that grace for us. I mean, it starts there, but we Amen. also feed that out to other people. You know, when you said that, it occurred to me something. That, just try this on. But what occurred to me was is when we make a mistake, if we do what the world does, what Adam did, try and cover it up, the whole world knows it's a fig leaf, <laughs> right? We're trying to hide some. If instead what we do is we get really good at admitting that we're failures. We get really good at admitting our faults quickly. We start owning that we're not perfect. Not only are we not perfect, but we're actually hopeless. So that we're quick 
to repent. We're quick to turn from that thing. Then all of a sudden the world starts seeing something that is very unworldly. Very much unlike how people in the world do things when they're trying to protect themselves. And that is incredibly attractive because it's free. We'll do Julie and then we'll go to Mike. Okay. Oh, Mike and then Andy. Sorry. Good. Thank you, Adam. Hi, I'm Mike. <laughs> um, this striving thing and this repeated thing strikes me. Um, C.S. Lewis expressed it as further up and further in. The infiniteness of God is a continual growth, a continual moving forward in that. And the way I heard it in your sermon was the Pharisee tried to find a place of equilibrium. Like huh. Luther awesome. was trying to find this place of <laughs> equilibrium while continually denying himself and he couldn't find that place. Um, and you can just start saying, well, I'm good enough. Uh, the Pharisees just saying, well, I'm trying to do as much as I can. And at some point you start going, well, I just need to find equilibrium, so I have to think this is, yeah. uh, this is okay. And Paul was doing it by killing Christians. Paul would be ISIS yeah. today. We'd see him as ISIS That's right. today. But the, the continual further up and further in is always saying, I, I'm not going to just be satisfied with where I am today, but okay, God taught me that. Okay, now I'm moving on to something new. That's awesome. I can never be satisfied where I am today. I'm going to pour myself out more. I'm going to find the new place where God is wanting to use me to bless others. To come, up with a, come up with a really great C.S. Lewis sermon. I want people to fall in love with C.S. Lewis and the relationship he had with God. And maybe it's, if you have some other sermon, I know you're preaching here soon. So uh, I don't think we've scheduled a date yet, but call me and we'll get that set up. But, but, it, but take that as a, as a possibility, okay? I'd, I'd really like to, I'd really love people to hear C.S. Lewis in his heart. We're just going to do a couple more and then we're going to wrap up. Andy. Hi, I'm Andy. Um, so for that, how can we increasingly focus on what God is focused on? Yeah. We can't. It's... <laughs> That's we awesome. can't do it. We need him. We need him so much. Yeah. Yeah. He says, "Come to me, all of you are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Yeah. Come, learn from me, and yeah. I'll give you peace for your souls." Wow. And he's not just a convenient sacrifice. He's not just something that great. We come to him, we confess our sins, and we don't have to shed any blood. We don't have to That's kill awesome. a goat. He wants more than that. He said, "You know, abide in me," and there's. I can't abide in him. It's impossible for me yeah. to do it. I need him, and I need him to do it in me. And the most awesome thing about it is that he wants to do it. He's not just, hey, get saved, and then you're on your own, Jack. You, you better be yeah. good now. It's not only I, I've saved you, but I want to save you. I want to yeah. free you from yourself. Yeah. That's awesome, Andy. One more. Is that Kay? articulate what I want to say, but I just feel such a burden to, um, you know, I've spent so many years, I knew God loved me, I knew God loved me, but there's such a difference when we come into his presence and that reality of what you're speaking about yeah. changes everything. Yeah. You know, when we un understand, begin, just begin, because as we begin to understand his love, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. There's Amen. no end to it. Amen. And as we begin to walk into the depth of that, it changes everything. It changes my quiet time, our relationship with him, our desire yeah. to spend time with him. It's yeah. no longer work. Yeah. It's no longer a to-do list that I feel guilty because I haven't accomplished what I thought I should do. Yeah. But it becomes a relationship. Yeah. And he begins to speak in a way that we, 
I didn't understand before. And I'm beginning to understand the lies that I've believed that weren't yeah. true because yeah. for lots of reasons. So anyhow. That is beautiful. Because That's a beautiful note. That's a perfect note to end on. Okay, Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this family, this body, I know there's lots more things that people could say. Thank you for quickening things to people's hearts because you're making it real in us. You're bringing it down deep. You're putting it in our souls and our hearts. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we're asking you right now. Reach down in front of you.